Hello, friends. Welcome to Feed Learning People podcast, a podcast where fellow humans share the vulnerable moments and how they navigated sticky situations throughout their careers. We've all been there, so let's learn from each other. My name is Jesse, and today I'm here with Jasmine W. <laughs> okay, today I'm here with Jasmine W. She and I used to work together in the same company until we both decided to pursue our passion. In this episode, we'll learn more about her jump from HR to comedy and how she has adapted her comedy career during quarantine. We'll also get deep and personal about her experience with stereotypes as a Black woman, both in her career and personal life. She'll enlighten us about Black history and give us advice on how we can play a role in counteracting systemic racism, particularly how we can support Black Lives Matter. Hope you enjoy this episode and check out feedlearning.com slash podcast for the show notes. So how do we know each other, Jasmine? We worked at CBS together. That's how we know each other in the HR department. I know, HR department. And uh, I remember, I think I clicked with you because you're from Texas too. Yep, we're both from Dallas. And you went to uh, the same high school that one of my friends growing up went to as well. Exactly, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So small world there, but we both lived at San Francisco at the time. Yep. All right, so let's go ahead and get straight to it. Can you scan your resume starting with when you graduated college and up to where you are now? I graduated college the same month that my husband got a job in California, in Nevada, California, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had been together like probably two years before that. So I already knew he wanted to move to California. That was one of his life goals is to live here. Mm-hmm. And when he got that job, I said, I'm moving too, even though I was a broadcast communications major. So I wanted to be a newscaster, but moving to San Francisco, that's one of the largest markets. I said, okay, I'm not going to be a newscaster because how Mm -hmm. am I going to do that? You know, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to move to um, the Bay Area and just figure it out because I always figure it out. Okay. So I started, I worked in customer service and I started at a startup, which was the Uber before Uber was called Sidecar. I did a lot of stuff there. I did help with recruiting. I was head of technical support. I did training. And then I worked at a small marketing agency because I was like, I don't really, you know, this company's not going anywhere. Like, what do I do? So I changed jobs and I realized I hated marketing, like I absolutely hated it. So I was like, I really like hiring people and what I was doing before at the at the smaller company at Sidecar. So I started recruiting at a satellite company. Mm -hmm. They hired me as a recruiting coordinator um, first and I was the first person on the recruiting They didn't have HR there. So I Mm -hmm. ended up during my time there being a recruiter, being the only HR person there, doing a lot of their learning and talent stuff for the team, Mm -hmm. hiring people, helping people with benefits. Like You did everything. I did. It was me and a lawyer and a legal Mm -hmm. person that was HR. So I said, you know what? Uh, The CEO there didn't want HR. So I decided I need to go somewhere that does want HR. And then that's Mm -hmm. when I interviewed with... Trisha at CBS oh, to be okay. her yeah. assistant and her yeah. HR coordinator. And so I worked my way up there. Eventually, you know, I went from specialist to senior specialist to HR manager. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to quit my job in August to pursue stand up comedy full time, which is something that I was doing on the side the entire yeah. time. 
Yeah, and I, I got to watch one of your shows, too, yeah, in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. It probably wasn't very good if it was in San Francisco. I've no. gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> I still like the impersonation of your dad, though. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. Yeah, so <laughs> me and my husband, you know, we decided to move to L.A. to see if I was, also because it's something that he's always wanted from the beginning. You know, San mm-hmm. Francisco was just the avenue for us. But it was also to see if I was really funny. And it turns out, I think I am. So that's oh, yeah? why. Yeah. yeah. I just laughed. So you're doing something good right you're now. You're easy. You're, tell, let me, you're one of the easiest people to make laugh I've ever met. Okay. That's true. I, I, I lose a staring contest within like three seconds. I cannot. I, yeah, I'm bad at that. But I would say you're very funny, especially your jokes that don't work. That segment? Yeah, you like that? Those jokes really work on me. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about comedy, Jasmine. Um, Why comedy? You know, I started doing comedy because I was a broadcast communication major and I signed Mm -hmm. with a talent agency in San Francisco and I would leave work even at CBS uh, and I would take long lunches where I would be be gone for an hour or two hours to do auditions. (laughs) Did anyone know? No, no one noticed. (laughs) And that's the description of top talent when you leave for two hours and nobody notices, even when you're an assistant. Wow. Um, And then I decided, you know, I can't be an actress and be in commercials and stuff like that and have a corporate Uh job. What can I do at night? And then I thought my dad did comedy a little bit. Like the first time he did comedy, he did a comedy competition in Dallas and he won $100. Nice. And I said, I know I'm funnier than him. And so I started doing (laughs) comedy. Okay, so that's why you went that's, to comedy. That's why. And then, you know, you just fall in love with a part of me is probably I'm super conceited and self-absorbed. And I love people <laughs> listening to what I have to say. So you went from like HR to being a comedian. Yeah. That's like total opposite. Yeah. Um, were there times when you were at CBS that you wanted to make an inappropriate joke, but you had to bite your tongue? Girl, there was never not a time. There were times where I thought way, way worse things than I would ever say out loud. Yeah. And it's like, I think I do really have a talent for being able to say things and say it in a way that people absorb it. So you have to like not be afraid of saying stuff as a comedian, huh? Right. Sometimes I have like this internal dialogue with myself. Like, I think that's going to be funny. But no, what if someone doesn't laugh? So I never say anything. I never get to know if I'm going to be funny or not. I don't know if that happens to you or not. Um, How many bad jokes do you have to go through to get a good one? Wow. I think you have to go through 25 bad jokes to get a good one, if I had to guess. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's where jokes that don't work sparked because it's like you think that stuff is funny. And there there are people who comment and say, this is funny. But when you get on stage and it's not right, you know, or people don't get it. Mm-hmm. Or some things just don't translate and they don't laugh, you know, and then automatically you're not you're no longer funny in that moment. So that, you know, it's all about the delivery, huh? Yeah. And, and the construction, the delivery and the construction of it all. You know, have you ever delivered a joke on stage that in your head? Oh, this is going to be so funny. And you said it. And then no one laughs? Every single time, no one laughs. <laughs> really? Yeah, you still do it. <laughs> the, the best thing about comedy is you don't know what's going to come after that. Something after that could be really funny. The okay. thoughts that come after that disappointment, that embarrassment are sometimes hilarious. Mm-hmm. So you have to take those risks. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Would you say that 
being a comedian is your career now? At the moment, you know, we've been in quarantine for about 13 weeks. Yeah. So it's, um, I feel like it's forcing me to adjust that statement. I feel like at the moment, being a content creator is my is my job. Mm, and okay. being a comedian is kind of secondary. But if the world was 100% what it was, you know, a year ago, I would say mm-hmm. that being a comedian is my full-time job. Yeah. Okay. So going from HR and going to comedy... Were you afraid of failure or like, you know, were you afraid, oh man, I have something good. I have something stable right now. Now I'm going to go into comedy. Like, is this the right choice for me for my career? Is this the right next step for me? Did you ever, ever have that dialogue with yourself? I still have that dialogue, you know? I mean, it hasn't even been a year. And the thing about it too, that really made me take the leap is I know I was about to get a promotion to like senior HR manager, right? Yeah. And I came home and I had been probably HR manager for like, I was taking on all this responsibility. I really stepped up. Like I will not, I'm not ashamed to say I was top talent. So, um, and you know, I told my husband, I think, you know, I think I'm close to getting another promotion. And he said, if you take that promotion, you've chosen your path. Like wow. you've chosen the thing that you want to do because it's not going to stop, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, you're just going to continue getting promoted and promoted again. Exactly. Because of your top talent. Yeah. You know, I still think, did, did I make the right decision? You know, especially now with the world on lockdown, it's like you just have to continue to muster up the faith every day to trust yourself mm-hmm. to like, mm-hmm. that's it. Every, every, not every day, every three days. <laughs> Every three days, you question yourself. Yes. Did I make the right decision? Should I have not left my corporate job? And it's not even like questioning every three days. It's like feeling a high. You know, I like mm-hmm. last night I got 6,000 followers on TikTok last night. Nice. And that feels good today. But in three days, I'm going to be like, damn, I need like 100,000 more followers <laughs> in order to build up my other content that I'm creating and everything. So it's just a constant Mm -hmm. hustle. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a constant hustle. And it's like, we kind of left around the same time. I left first and then you left afterwards. And we kind of talked about, hey, what is it like to be on your own and stuff, right? Yes, I talked to you about that. Yeah, and it's like, you have to make your own schedule, but it is that constant hustle. No one's going to push you but yourself. So yeah, that's uh, how being on your own works. So let's talk about success. How do you define success in your career? Man, it's so funny because me and my me and my husband would like openly disagree about this. <laughs> okay, he's very he's very driven. You know, he's very always thinking about the future and everything. I define success first with my happiness. How happy am I while doing the things that I want to do? And some things that bring me happiness is like free stuff, money. You know what I mean? Free stuff. Yes. I love free stuff. You know, like, yeah, girl, this wig I'm wearing, I got for free just because, oh, really? yeah, I'm like, this is cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, free stuff, uh-huh. money, of course, is going to contribute to my happiness. But being my authentic self is something that's also priceless to me. Yeah. But of course, I want to be successful. Of course, I want to make money. Of course, I'd love to make what I would be making as an HR manager, as a comedian. And I would be very happy with that, which is like six figures, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So all of those things, really. I mean, I can't be that happy if I'm broke. So it's going <laughs> to contribute. True. Yeah. That's true. I feel like with you, you're a super creative person with the, the content creation that you have. I feel like if you're not creating or, or you're not like sparking that creativity or using it every day that you probably don't feel happy then, huh? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about a little bit more about confidence. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how you're <laughs> like, you just have to be confident to be a comedian. And I feel like you have to be not only confident to be a comedian and you know speak in front of people, but you have to be smart. You have to be like able to read the room and know the reaction of the people as well, of the audience. Yeah. Um, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like very confident, one being not so confident, how confident do you feel you are? You know what? I want to, before I answer that, I want to debunk the myth that you have to be confident to be a comedian. I know plenty yeah? of comedians oh. uh-huh. who don't feel good about themselves, who I wouldn't okay. consider confident people. But they're still good. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> okay. the fact uh-huh. that they aren't confident is the joke. Ah. There's a comedian okay. in L.A., and um, I think he's really funny. His name is Josh Snyder. He's Jewish, short, shy, geeky looking. One of the geekiest looking guys you've ever seen, right? <laughs> so you can tell, like, he might be confident on the, on the inside. You don't, we don't know. I don't know him personally. But mm-hmm. he's his joke is that he makes fun of himself. And you can tell these are very true feelings about himself. Ah, okay. If you had to, if you had to, <laughs> this is going to be kind of mean, but true. If you had to imagine what an incel looks like, Josh okay. Snyder would come to your head. You <laughs> okay. Know? I got I'm going to look him up. I'm going to look him up then. So, so here's a question for that then. Do you feel, what's more important, being confident or being authentic, your authentic self on stage? Yeah, that important? authenticity, the truth, Yeah. you know, because huh. okay. some of the, you know, in their head, hottest looking white guys like to get up mm-hmm. and think they're going to do comedy, right? Just because they look yeah. good and their frat brothers told them that they're funny. Mm-hmm. But they're so mm-hmm. inauthentic that they, they're not funny at all. They just come off as like douchebags. It's like, dude, ah, you know okay. what I mean? So they have that yeah. confidence, but they don't have that authenticity. So they'll never be as good as a Josh Snyder. Got it. Let's talk about more about your confidence. How, how confident of a person are you? You know what? This is a this is a very tough question. And to be authentic to myself, I'm going to give two answers. I would say that in public, right? In public, my public persona is that I would give myself like an eight or a nine when it came to confidence. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a pretty confident person. And I do really feel that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I create content and I think about putting it out and that vulnerability that it takes and that self-doubt that just crumbles me, that keeps me from putting things out, that keeps me from doing the things that I don't even know that I can do, mm-hmm. the fact that I don't even know that I can do it, you know, I'd give myself probably like a six, okay. you know, because my lack of believing in myself, I think, is what keeps me back more than anything. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing, the every three days thing, you know? Yeah. So many people I know look at me and say, you're so talented. You're so talented. And sometimes I believe other people believe that more than I believe that about myself. I feel the same way as those people were saying, like, you're so talented. Because I see your Instagram posts. I see all the work that you're putting into it. 
to me, it portrays that you're very confident, but I never thought about this internal struggle that you're having. Yeah, I have a vision board. And, you know, the main thing that I look at says, keep going. You can do it. You can. Ah. Do you feel that you're more confident now than before as a comedian? Yeah. What made you confident? I think, you know, your success rate. You know, mm-hmm. the, as you build your resume, it's just like working in HR, you know, you, you think you can do it and you think, you know, but the more you build, the more yeah. credentials you get under your resume, it kind of builds like, OK, I'm pretty good at this. And the more shows you do and the more people that back you up and then you go on tour, then they want you yeah. to come back. It's just like mm-hmm. those things that that build you. And then I also think that the main thing for me that I'm experiencing, like in this very moment, like today is I feel like a lot of things that that's happening, I'm manifesting those things. Yeah. And as they come to me, they're give it's like gas. It, you know, like fuel to keep going. Mm-hmm. Not not fart gas. Girl, right? That too, because I had ice cream <laughs> okay. yesterday and I shouldn't even be having ice cream. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So that's how you build your confidence there. Um so so speaking of what's going on today, I, I do want to dive into that as well. Um, but before that, I want you to describe yourself, Jasmine. So how would you describe yourself in terms of your race, ethnicity, gender, generation, Mm -hmm. and so on? Um, I am a black woman. I would probably say I'm a black ass, black ass woman, like black, (laughs) blickety black ass woman. (laughs) (laughs) I've been told by my friend, one of my really intelligent friends, multiple times that I might over identify with being black, but I'm okay with Mm -hmm. that. Good. Be proud of that. Yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm a woman. I'm very emotionally intelligent. I don't think I'm one of the smartest people in the room a lot of the time, but I am probably Mm -hmm. the most emotionally intelligent people in the Mm -hmm. room every single time. Okay. And I am the product of Africa and slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's how I would describe my generational, um, how I got here, basically. Okay. Let's talk about your upbringing. Okay. Because um, later we'll talk about like, racism and stereotypes and all that stuff. And I think one of the best ways to counter racism stereotypes is to seek narratives and learn about other people's upbringing and their experiences. So Mm -hmm. can you tell me more about what it was like to grow up in your household? So growing up, my, my, my mom, when she met my dad, she was actually already married and she cheated on her husband with my dad. And Hmm. ended up leaving. Wow, you sure you want to say that on this? I say it all the time. I think it's a very funny story. (laughs) Okay. So I have permission to laugh about that. Yeah, I think it's hilarious. Um, Okay. So she, you know, my brother and sister, even though my dad never treated them at all like so, but they're actually my half siblings. So there was always laughter in my household. My parents are still together. They've been together 36 years now. That's a long time. Yeah. But um, there's always so much laughter, so much tension because my dad is their stepdad. So much me being the youngest, being the comic relief Mm -hmm. and a lot of probably chaos because my sister's 14 years older. She was very rebellious. She left and went to the military right when she turned 18. My brother's eight years older than me. I watched all of his mistakes, but there's also this underlying 
comic relief in the family. Like whenever something bad happens, like we discuss it and we process it a little bit, but we can't process it for too long before we start to joke about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that could be good good. or bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, I would say, you know, my family, my mom and dad, they were super loving. They treated us all the same. Like my dad never said, oh, I have stepkids. He says, I have two daughters and a son. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the the number one thing that I remember, you know, and my parents always set us down and said, when we die, you only have each other to stick up for each other. You know, like you are each other's best friends. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there was a lot of turmoil just because there was was a lot of drama growing up because my dad was my sibling's stepdad. And, you know, and it, it's a hard sort of it's a difficult relationship to navigate, but at the same time, my parents did the very best that they could in the situation and raise us to, you know, look out for each other. So, so looking out for each other, um, in addition to that, were there any other lessons taught or values that your parents instilled in you? Yeah. The main thing that my parents would say before any conversation is whatever said in this house stays in this house. Mm -hmm. You know, when things happen at home, when there is drama or when there's happiness or whatever, it's like, come to us. We talk about it as a family, but it doesn't mean we talk about it with other family. (laughs) And it doesn't mean we talk about it with friends or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, when your sister's in a bad relationship, we handle that as a family doesn't mean that you go tell your friends or you go tell, you know, anybody about it. And some people might say, what What the hell was their family doing? Were they in a mafia or something like that? It really wasn't about that. It was more about open communication within the family. Mm-hmm. But I also come from a very kind of gossipy family. So it was my parents' sort of mm-hmm. commitment to us that they would not go tell my cousins or my grandma or my aunts and uncles the thing that happened in our house to embarrass us which is kind of sometimes what my family members did outside of our house, you know? Mm-hmm. It was kind of similar to my household too. It's like things were happening at home, but you don't talk about to other people. I learned the word reputation from my dad. Mm. It's like, if you say anything about the family, it might ruin their family reputation and we need to look good and stuff. Was reputation another reason why things had to stay in the family or was it more of just closeness and that open communication? It was more, yeah, reputation wasn't a thing. Like reputation to who? Uh-huh. Mm. You know, to the parents, friends and stuff. I think, no, you know, like, no. OK. I don't really think that's a huge thing in the um, generation that my parents grew up in, you know, as black mm-hmm. people. I think that that is a uh, immigrant thing. Ah, yes. And because my parents yes. are not immigrants, like I see it across Asian first gen friends that I have, Nigerian first generation friends that I have. Latina first generation friends that I have like that is an immigrant thing and not yeah. a African American problem I think because it's like what reputation do we have to break it was more of my parents displaying that you know we have a, an ally to you and to you to us mm-hmm. my dad always said be the same person every day you know don't be moody And everything that's happened in this house stays in this house. Your true feelings about things, you know, we can talk openly, but, you know, you won't be condemned for the way that you feel or think kind of thing. I like your dad. (laughs) Yeah, he cool. He's a good dad. He cool. Father's (laughs) Father's Day is coming up. What are you going to do? 
Girl, give him $20 and tell him to keep it moving. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Hi, everyone. So I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about Feed Learning. Feed Learning is an HR and talent consulting firm that helps build sustainable teams through interactive and virtual training courses, one-on-one coaching for managers, and HR process improvement strategies. Check out our website at feedlearning.com to see the new trainings we're offering, and also if you're interested in online resources to help you throughout your career. All right, now back to the show with Jasmine. Let's continue talking about stereotypes. Um, What stereotypes do you feel have been placed on you in your career? I think it's a really great stereotype that I think that I have and many black women have is that we're honest, like we're real. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, maybe me being too outspoken or maybe me being um, insubordinate or angry when I am not any of those things. Like, what do I have to be angry about? I don't. Well, I have a lot to be angry about, actually. But in my day to day life, I don't, you know. Mm-hmm. What do you do about that? Like, have people ever said that you were, hey, why are you so angry? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I remember, not at CBS, but at a satellite company I worked at, there was a a white guy that was was hired after me, and he he was just very, like, I don't know who raised this guy, like... Very, like, you know, not cultured, had not probably been around any black people, especially black women, Mm-hmm. And had open conversations with him. It's like, why are you so mad? Why are you so angry? And yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm not angry. You're just stupid. You know, and it's and I'm not going to let you be stupid here in front of me. Like, I have to call you out on the things that you're saying because you aren't saying anything. And everybody else will just smile in your face and pretend like you really saying something and you're presenting some valid data and you're not. So is that angry? Did I, am I yelling or screaming because I'm calling you out and telling you that everything that you're saying is some bullshit? It's not angry. You're just speaking the truth. Just the yeah. truth, girl. Why do you think people say that or believe that? When you're just talking or speaking the truth and being your authentic self, some people are saying, hey, she's she has an attitude. You know what I, I, I truly think it is? I think that most people are not used to speaking their true emotions and how they feel. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of black women are used to doing that. So whenever we say something that you're not willing to say, we're automatically out of line. Mm-hmm. No, we're not. You were probably thinking it too. You just didn't want to say it. And then when I said it out loud, you shocked. <gasps> yeah. Can we dive more into the current events? Yeah. Today? Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. How would you explain Black Lives Matter to people who are thinking all lives matter? Mm. You know, I saw something um, online and I thought this was a good example. So I don't want to take credit for this. Uh, I saw a white girl say this on like TikTok or something. Mm-hmm. You really like TikTok. I do. Huh? It's fun. <laughs> uh, everybody should get on it. It's just fun. Even if you're not going to do anything on it, just watch. Uh-huh. Um, and so what she said was... Um, you know, when your neighbor's house is burning and like the the whole neighborhood comes to kind of douse water on it, douse water on it, that's Black Lives Matter. It's like this house matters at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody else comes and say, but my house, what about my house? And then you look over at their house and it's not on fire. And we say, what, what about your house? And she's like, well, my house matters. Yeah, it does. But your house isn't on fire right now. Yeah. And they're like, 
yeah, let's let's focus on this fire and then whatever's going on in your house, whether it's the plumbing or whatever it might be, then we can fix that. But right now this house is on fire. That's how I would describe Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean that your life doesn't matter. Your life is less valuable. Latina people, their lives mattered when we were putting them in cages and when we were separating kids from their families. That was a huge movement. And I know a lot of Black people that was spoke out about that movement, you know? Mm-hmm. And then now... When you have this surgence of black people, not only being killed by the police, but being killed by civilians, like normal people taking it into their own hands to kill me because I'm jogging in your neighborhood is it's wrong yeah. and people have to be held accountable. And if we don't hold our mayors, our district attorneys, mm-hmm. our police forces, if we don't hold all these people accountable, who will? For the people who think that all lives matter, it's going to matter if it was happening in your community, too. So that's Mm -hmm. the thing that we have to come together at this moment to combat this and to bring down the people who are trying to get away with killing innocent people during this time. So that's that's the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's it's not like the black community can do it by themselves. Right. You need the allyship of everyone else. Like for me growing up, I used to think like, okay, whatever happens in the black community, that's their problem to fix. Like I have nothing to do mm-hmm. with it. I'm not, I'm not a racist. I have nothing to do with it. But it wasn't until recently, honestly, that I realized my inaction, me not speaking up is me participating in a system of oppression too. Yeah. The one thing I will say about that is um, I have a YouTube channel, right, where I Mm -hmm. do a lot of funny videos. But my most recent one was about the Epstein documentary. And I will, uh, you know, I said in that documentary, I didn't know who Epstein was. I thought that because that this was a powerful white man who did something. Yeah, who did something wrong. I didn't know what he did before I watched the documentary and all of this stuff. You know, I said, because this is a powerful white man, I thought white men do bad things all the time. This has nothing to do with me nothing to do with me. So I didn't care to look into it. And then I decided to watch. And then I thought, wow, when powerful white men do bad things, it does affect me. Yeah. It does affect me. So you just thinking that black lives being taken doesn't affect you because it's your community is a disservice to your own consciousness, Mm -hmm. to your own community to your kids, their future, because it does affect you, even though you can turn off the TV and not see it, even though you might not have any black friends, so you don't have to hear about it. And your black coworkers are pretending to be just fine emotionally, so you don't have to confront it. But when things like this happen and nobody's held accountable, you don't mm-hmm. like you don't want the police officers to be held. What if it happened to your uncle? All these people got away with it. And when it happens to your uncle, right, because your uncle, if they're listening, is, pro- is likely a person of color. They could be. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. nobody's going to care because it's gotten they've gotten away with it. So, for you know, so many other times. Yeah. You know, and even if it didn't happen to your uncle, if it happened to another black person, why would you not care about that person's life? And you care about the justice system that you live in. It's Mm -hmm. unjust for people to get away with it and not have any consequences. So this affects your rights and your justice system. Absolutely. It might not directly affect you, but indirectly it does, right? And 
the world goes round. Like if it doesn't happen to you and your community now, it may in the future. Like even with COVID, right? Not until COVID happened mm-hmm. when like, okay, Chinese people or Asian people are, were blamed for COVID. I started to feel like a little scared. And now I'm like, okay, this is what it feels like to be discriminated against, right? right? I don't know if I told you, I'm moving back to Brooklyn mm. in a couple of weeks. We're rented an RV and we're doing cross-country road trip across the Midwest. Yeah. I'll be honest, I'm a little scared. If I see like, you know, white people out there, are they going to think that I have COVID and like, you know. Well, first of all, your husband, white girl, so calm down. <laughs> your hu- once they okay. see your husband, okay. they're going to look at you crazy. They, they Even the racist people might look you up and down and they might want to say something to you and they might That's say true. something to you, but they'll probably never really do anything because your husband, white, number one. That's true. Um, I, I got lucky there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's so, the first thing. Yeah. But the second thing is like AIDS. HIV, mm-hmm. Ebola, they blame all these things on us. We've been the disease carrier for decades yeah. in yeah. America and across the world. And there's really nothing that you can do about people's perceptions of you. Just keep going, keep going about your own business. The things that people say I've learned is you really have to you know, stand up for yourself and say something back. But unless they really about it, and they want to mm-hmm. like attack you physically or something like that. Most of the time, you do really just have to ignore it. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my brother before this call, and um, recently I shared a article that was written by an Asian American who talked about um, Asian American complicity and how we look good because the black community. Do you know what? Do you yeah, know what I like? The focus was on us and the and the and the things yeah. that we did that were bad, and it made you guys sort of like fall into the shadows or you know be looked at as yeah. good. Yeah, and, and us not saying anything or speaking up for the black community mm-hmm. made us look good, just to be complicit and not go against the status quo and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, so I shared an article about that, and uh, and I think my brother he started to get confused and a little bit frustrated about himself for perpetuating this cycle of oppression Mm -hmm. by not speaking up and not doing anything. So I guess a question for you is what can we do um, to help break this cycle of oppression and this systemic racism? I always say like it starts at home too. Like the fact that you're teaching your kids differently is huge, but speak up to your friends and your family members and your coworkers. Like, I think all the uh, oftentimes, you know, I could be in a meeting, right? And I and somebody could say something to me that was, you know, racially insensitive, prejudice, and nobody would say anything. Like nobody would speak up. It's like, why? Why am I the only person that's having to sit with this emotion? And, you know, my Asian homegirl over here, my Indian homegirl over here, my Hispanic homeboy over here, and ain't nobody really saying nothing to speak up for me. Why is that? Why am I alone in this? And why are y'all just quiet? Mm -hmm. You know, so Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, refusing to be quiet to your own family members, to your friends when they say things that are wrong, to your coworkers, to me is the very first step, you know? Okay. It's like, speak up. It's like, no, that ain't, that's not right. And I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Shame them for saying things that are, that are wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing is, I think that, and you know, this is something that I've, I've learned over the past week, to be honest, because I'm really not into politics. Like I never, I don't like it because I was taught 
as a black person that the politics will never benefit me ever. Mm. Like the laws, and this is true, they weren't made to benefit me. They were made to oppress me. So in order to make a difference, we all have to pay attention to politics. Does that mean you automatically vote Democrat? No. Does that mean you automatically vote Republican? No. It means we start paying attention to what's happening in our society Mm -hmm. and the people and what they're actually saying. Yeah. And on every level, like the police commissioner, I just found out in LA that a billion dollars goes to the funding for the police in LA. Mm -hmm. Why do they get this much money? Why? We need to take away some of that money and reallocate it to other to other parts of the community, schools, anything else. You know, mm-hmm. I'm hearing a lot of t- people say, oh, well, donate, donate. Donating is good. But if you don't do research on who you're donating to, what the cause is, where the money is going, everybody, 40 million people don't have jobs right now. We can't expect mm-hmm. everybody to dig into their pockets right now. That's True. my reality. You know, like like I had a, a, a one of my white friends just say, just don't give money. That ain't the right thing to say. Do your research. That's what I really want everybody to do on who you're voting for. Get Get people away from you with this prejudice, racist rhetoric, and take small steps in that way. Those are small to me digestible steps that everybody can take mm-hmm. and to not feel so overwhelmed with the things that they have to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a person yeah. that gets easily overwhelmed when I have 10 things to do in a day. And if, if fighting against your race is one of the things I have to add, like how frustrated, like how you know overwhelmed would I be, you know, like your brother, yeah. So if he can just yeah. start with those small things, I think that that's good. Yeah, I agree with you with the the ignorance and the lack of understanding of the system of oppression, of you know how privileges work and racism and systemic racism. I think it prevents us from taking action because we don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to learn. I think everyone's learning about this every single mm-hmm. day. Um, but I agree with you. Like, just learn, read, you know, know know what we're fighting for. Yeah. Um, don't just donate just because other people are doing it. Don't just jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. You gotta know why. Sending an yeah. email, like yeah. a lot of my friends are doing these email templates, and that's easy. It's free to send an email to your mm-hmm. to your police department, local police department, to inquire about where their budget's going. You know the injustices happening, or even if they're not your local police department. I've emailed Minneapolis Police Department and say that these guys need to be brought to justice, and those things are free that you can do. You know. Yeah. Um, I was watching a um, infographic that mm-hmm. said, oh, this is, and I posted it on my Instagram and said, this is, explains, you know, systematic racism. And it talks about a black kid and a white kid growing up and going to school. Kevin and Jamal, yeah, right? Jamal lives in a poor neighborhood. But it doesn't even scratch the surface because Jamal lives in a poor neighborhood and he goes to public school and his school doesn't get funding. And Kevin's school gets funding because he lives in a a better neighborhood. But it doesn't even talk about the other things that Jamal has to go through during school. Like you don't know what Jamal's going through at home because his parents are poor, which which affects him Mm -hmm. at school. And then mm-hmm. Jamal might go to detention and, you know, and he's up against a white teacher who doesn't understand him, who has these systematic um, prejudices that she's grown up with. Right. His teachers, his teacher's 35. Jamal's five years old. She has no idea what Jamal goes through because she comes from the white neighborhood to teach him. 
and mm. she's teaching a room full of 30 black kids, you know, and she doesn't understand them. And then Jamal gets put on, um, they say he, Jamal has ADD and he's put on like little baby uh, crack cocaine, right? <laughs> to calm mm. him down or to control his, yeah. like there's so many pieces to the puzzle that people don't understand. And that's why I said on my Instagram, this only scratches the surface. Yeah. Because there are so many other things that affect Jamal's world. And that's also, I can talk about this for hours. You can cut this out, girl, but that's also- (laughs) No, this is fascinating. Like I- I need to educate myself and yeah, I'm sure every everyone else is curious as well. Yeah, I mean like so. and another thing I just have to say that's like a lot of times people bring up what about black on black crime? What about that? Mm-hmm. Well, if you do your history, black people were thriving in the 40s. We had Black Wall Street. We were coming up after my grandfather was a sharecropper, which is mm-hmm. basically a new slave. Like after mm. slavery, they created sharecropping. Well, you know what? You work on our land and we'll pay you. We've seen people come in the, the, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, come from sharecroppers to owning their own businesses, to being independent. And then something like crack cocaine, which the government put into our communities to fund wars, mm. comes into the community, right? And when you've been oppressed mm. for so long, I'm not saying that drugs is an excuse, but we see it right now with the drugs on war. When you are in a poor position, like in some of these, you know, rural communities, white communities now, it's like some people started to use drugs and some people started to sell drugs because it's easier than starting your own business, right? You yeah. see immigrants come in, people from different countries, and they're starting businesses with business loans and black people can't even get those loans. And then it's just this perpetuation of keeping us down. And I don't know why we're the key player in all this. Like, damn, why do black people, why y'all got to pick on us? Why can't y'all pick on somebody else for a change? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why. I think it has something to do with controlling the entire racist narrative across all people to keep us down, right? It helps with that entire narrative, right? But um, I think people really need to do their research and stop just blatantly saying things without knowing about the history of why these things happen and how they happen. Yeah. I want to uh, ask you questions about a, a few terms mm-hmm. that I'm still trying to learn about. So can you tell me more about colorism? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at any culture across mm-hmm. any continent, the darker mm-hmm. you are, the more negative um, the association with is around who you are. This has affected even the black community. It's like in the United States, right? It's more of a thing that has a connection to slavery, right? Because when Mm -hmm. um, female slaves would get raped and they have these mixed babies, the mixed babies are the master's babies. So what do they get? They they get more Mm -hmm. privileges. They get to move into the house. Mm -hmm. That's why they call you the the term house nigga came from that because Mm -hmm. it's like you're light skinned because you're mixed now. You get to move into the house. You still have to probably you know, be like a housemate or whatever, but because you are lighter skin, you get moved in and then all the dark skin people get moved outside. Right. Oh. It's like in Latin America, the closer you are to the, like the darker skin you are, means that the closer you are to that African heritage. Right. And nobody mm-hmm. wants to be associated with Africa. Cause what does that mean? You're associated with all the negativity that comes along with being mm-hmm. dark skin. It's like people who are Dominican and they claim that they're not black when Dominican and Haiti are on the same Island. 
How are you mm-hmm. not black? Mm-hmm. You next door neighbor, all these black people. <laughs> what? That, that don't make no mm-hmm. sense. You black mm-hmm. too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the Asian community. In college, my roommate in college for a whole year was from um, the Philippines. And she mm-hmm. was studying to be a nurse. She happened to be a lesbian. Her girlfriend was also studying to be a nurse. She told me that her girlfriend and her friends in the Philippines would inject themselves with something that would prevent them from getting darker. Because being darker wow. in the Philippines is not associated with with status, with Mm -hmm. wealth, with intelligence. Um, You know what I mean? The only problem we really don't have this problem in is like places like Nigeria. I can imagine. I'm my husband's Nigerian. I've been to Nigeria and it seems to be like everybody's brown skin, everybody's dark skin. That was a huge like um, culture shock for me being in a place with everybody mm-hmm. that looks like me. But in South Africa, you have that because you have apartheid and you have history of rape mm-hmm. and the lighter skinned you are. It's everywhere. It's in the Middle East. It's to associate yourself mm-hmm. with that lighter skinned community. And it's a problem yeah. all over the world, girl. And I, we can't even scratch the surface on that in, in two yeah. hours. You just educated me so much. Like I, I had no, I didn't know about the, all that history there. I understood the concept of colorism mm-hmm. a little bit, but you just going through that history really makes me want to learn more about it. So thanks for sharing yeah. that. Um, how about another term, microaggressions? Mm. Right. I feel like it depends on the rapport with the person. Like if you can make certain comments. Yeah. Right. Um, how would you describe microaggressions? They can be as blatant as, like, I told this story on Instagram. Yesterday I went to the park with my dog. Mm -hmm. And I had a Mm -hmm. woman, a brown woman. She wasn't Hispanic. I don't know what part, you know, where her background is from looking at her. But she was brown. And she just walks in front of me. And I thought, me and my dog are just sitting in Griffith Park, chilling. I have my journal. Mm -hmm. I'm about to meditate, girl. I'm talking to my mom. Mm -hmm. And she's just looking at me. And I think she's looking at my dog. So I just say, oh, she's looking at my dog. And I just keep, because he's so cute. And then she just stops and stares at me. Stops and stares at me. I'm alone, like kind of alone in the park. The other people are probably like 50 feet away from me. Mm -hmm. And then I just shrug my shoulders and I'm like, what? And she shrugs her shoulders. Like what? And then just keeps walking. It's like, why are you doing that to me? Like, what, what are you trying to provoke me? Do you want me to stand up? Do you, are you trying to scare me? Like, I don't know what that is. It's something as blatant to that as me being in the workplace, right? And somebody saying, oh, Jasmine, so much attitude. Girl, what are you talking about? So much attitude. What are you? I'm laughing. I'm making jokes. It's like, mm-hmm. do I even say something? Or do I just let it slide? Was she trying to be nice? Or was she trying to, like, was that a stereotype? Because I feel like I'm being stereotyped into being, like, an angry, sassy black woman right now. And that's not even what I was being. Like, to me, it's, like, so blatant to so mindless like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It can be intentional or unintentional, like, insults. Yes, that's what it is. Me and my friend were talking about this on my podcast the other day. It's like, this is something that black people, I think, deal with all the time. Black men and black women holding the door open to me. And it could be my my psyche. Right. But whenever I approach a door, I'm always interested to see if a white man, if an Asian guy, if a Latina guy is going to hold the door open for me. It's something so small, Mm -hmm. something so can be such a polite gesture. And when they do it, I find myself being so thankful Mm because it's like 
somebody who's like willing to just take the extra step. And it makes me emotional. Sorry, thinking about it, but like to take the extra moment that it takes Mm -hmm. to just do that small gesture when a Mm -hmm. lot of people won't. So, you know, it's just something as small as that, that just as a black woman, you don't run into every single time you approach a door, you know? So, you know, that's to me is like some things that people don't think about. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like I think about this. So are you, are you saying that when you go in and out of buildings, like how often do people hold doors for you? Is it not as often as you see other Yeah, not as open? often. You wow. know, like... Because I feel like I... I feel like anytime I follow a guy, he's always opening the door for me. Yeah. Just about almost every time. That's no, not no. the case for you? Wow. And I ain't ugly. So. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're beautiful. You're <laughs> you beautiful, I mean? Jasmine. Like, <laughs> and yeah. you know, so for some people, it may not be anything. They might be in a hurry. They might be rude mm-hmm. in general, you know, but it's just the small things that people don't have to think about is affects us and it affects all black women. I've had these conversations. Me and my girlfriends get together every Friday to have like a little a, a Zoom meeting since um, the quarantine, you know, and they happen to be a group of black women and think we always vent about things like this that happen to us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't think people understand um, that microaggression is real, that prejudice is real. Like this is a real feeling that we feel and we're not making it up just because we want everybody to feel bad for us. You know, Mm -hmm. um, lots, Mm -hmm. I know black people who are very successful, including myself. I was, I was successful and I'm trying to be successful at the things that I'm doing. My Mm -hmm. husband is successful, my father, you know, but it's not making excuses. It's not complaining about who we are. It's just saying, you know, that we want to be treated equally. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for being. Thanks for being your authentic self. Girl, I'm so sensitive. I'm a Pisces, so <laughs> my husband will probably. Luckily, he's asleep. Like he's taking a nap, but he would roll his eyes right now. Like really, jazz. <laughs> hey, you know, I think that's. I think that's beautiful that you're able to like open up that way, and that vulnerability helps all of us learn more right. from each other too. So thanks for sharing that. I think we learned a lot. A lot to digest right now. So I'm going to pivot. We're going to do lightning round and then we're going to do uh, career okay. advice towards the end. Okay. So uh, lightning round, I'm just going to ask a whole bunch of random questions. I know you have yeah. random questions on, on your podcast it. as well. This one's, this one's very random, but like quick okay. response. Okay. Um, ready? Okay. All right. So Jasmine, lightning round. What was your very first job? Uh, Whataburger, I think. Oh my gosh. I love Whataburger. <laughs> Oh, they're good. That's the best burger ever. How old were you? 16. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I used to want to be a lawyer because I was very good at lying. And then I realized, wow, I'm too good at lying. I can't be a lawyer. That's wrong. So then I started to shift what I wanted to be. What college did you go to? UT Arlington. Ooh, UTA. Were you ever considered as a smart kid in class? Smart Alec. What do or did your parents do for work? My mom was a customer service representative um, for her whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's a lunch lady. Ooh. 
They're, they're my favorite lunch ladies. Yeah, she I always want like a little extra. <laughs> <laughs> she's a lunch lady in elementary school. She she likes doing it. Uh, and my dad's retired, but he worked at AT and T for 15 years, and then he yeah. became a manager at the TSA. Okay. Um, but he's retired okay. now. Okay. What did your parents want you to be? My parents didn't want me to be anything. They wanted no. me to be whatever I wanted to be, and I'm thankful oh. for that. If money wasn't an issue and you could be anything you wanted to be, what would it be? I'd probably have my own show, my own talk show. Okay. Mm-hmm. Similar it, to what you're doing now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be on mainstream media either. It'd be like, you know, on some individual platform, YouTube, or maybe some something okay. where I can make my own rules. Are you making money as a comedian? Girl, what comedian? <laughs> Are you making money as a content We're creator? Are you making money in this quarantine? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, okay. not a dollar. And um, but you know what? If I was if with more on quarantine, I would be traveling as a comedian, and I would be yeah. making some money. You were touring for a while, too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I would tours? be doing that. Yeah. But you know, nope. Have you ever been booed off of stage? Girl, no. <laughs> Any <laughs> tomatoes thrown at you? Listen, let me tell you something. You can not laugh at me, that's fine, but you will never boo me before I boo you because I would get to roasting everybody in, in the audience, girl. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> um, knock, knock. Who's there? Deja vu. Deja vu? Knock, knock. Who's there? Deja vu. Deja vu gone? <laughs> Deja vu, knock knock. Oh, do you get it? Okay, I said mind. deja vu. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you said, so it I said again? knock knock again. <laughs> That's not a funny joke, Jesse. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, favorite TV show? This is hard. This is really hard. Probably Martin. Which comedians are your role models, or what comedians influence you? Um, I would say Martin Lawrence's raw realness influenced mm-hmm. me. Characters influenced mm-hmm. me. Um, Dave Chappelle, Killing Them Softly, mm-hmm. Wanda Sykes. Would you pay $15 for a salad? I do. 18 Oh, dang. Okay. Sweet greens, girl, with two pieces of oh. salmon. Girl, that's a $20 salad. Do you do sock, shoe, sock, shoe, or sock, sock, shoe, shoe? Girl, sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Who puts their sock? What? Last question. Have you ever had to tell someone that they smelled bad? I've wanted to. But besides my husband, I don't know that I ever have. (laughs) All right. So we're going to end it with career advice. Um, What advice, Jasmine, would you give someone who is trying to figure out what career path to take? I'd give two pieces of, of advice. You know, I'd say, what's the lowest hanging fruit for you to do right now? Like, what do you have experience doing? How can we get you in the workforce to make some money, right? And if you, once you get in and you start making some money, I, I encourage people to think about what they've been doing since they were a kid. What have they been doing and what have they always loved doing? And then start to focus on that and do that until it starts to make you money. How long do you do it for until you reassess? Um, my advice would be to do it until it starts to make you enough money to quit what you don't really want to mm-hmm. be doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the, the lowest hanging fruit is something that you're comfortable with and it makes it, it you know, it gives, it gets you money and you're comfortable because you have, you want to have a family and you want to focus on other things besides money, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, 
or even besides like fulfilling your passion. Some people don't care about that. They just care about providing and their passion is their family, which I understand. But if you want to go towards your passion, right, um, you don't quit your job until you have a husband that can pay bills like me. <laughs> um, me, me too. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or it starts to make enough money to where you can quit. Uh, okay. What advice would you give someone who wants to take action and show support for Black Lives Matter but doesn't know where to start? Yeah. Start with your own community. Infiltrate your own community first by raising your kids right, by talking to your friends and telling them to shut the hell up and you ain't going to take it when they say some bullshit. (laughs) And then your own community is also your community of, you know, governors, um, police force and things like that. What are they doing to make sure that they are, you know, we all don't become susceptible to prejudice. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the next thing that we can all do is do your research on who you are voting for. Mm-hmm. Do your research. Don't blindly vote for any party. I've really learned that over the past week with everything that's happening. Don't pay attention to the media. They're here to sway you one way or the other. Do your own research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with mainstream media. They're always swaying you there. Yeah. Any books, resources, articles you recommend people to check out? One of my favorite books, so the last book that I read was a book by Jennifer Lewis, the mother of Black Hollywood. And um, you've seen her from the show Blackish. If you've mm-hmm, watched mm-hmm. any Black woman or any Black movie, she's probably played the Black mother and the Black grandmother in every Black movie you've ever seen <laughs> in the 90s. Um, and it's just about her journey to find herself. And she has, you know, she's manic depressive bipolar, I think. But it's just a wonderful, like, inspirational book. She talks about the AIDS pandemic in the 80s and the 90s as she was coming up. And it's just so inspirational to me. And that was the last book I read. So I recommend people okay. read that book. Okay. Let's say someone wants to quit their job and go to, like, the arts or comedy or be an actor or actress. What's, what's a bit of advice would you have for people who want to go into the arts or even want to become a comedian um don't do it because I'm trying to be one um (laughs) but you know it's it's a very difficult difficult thing to do because you don't make any money for a while and when you do it's crappy you know you stay in crappy hotels you have to you have to really love it you Mm -hmm. do it's not a luxurious life until you get to be mainstream. And now I'm starting to realize during the quarantine, because I'm doing a lot of research, that mainstream might not even be where I want to be. So I must create Mm -hmm. my own lane. Yeah, It's something you can start doing right now without anybody's help. And you don't need anybody. You don't need clout to do it. Just get online and start creating content. And that's my advice. Last thing, not so much of a question, but I know you have a podcast, mm-hmm. you have your Instagram, you have a YouTube channel. Tell me more about it so people can check you out. Yeah, so I have a podcast. It's called Color to Couch Conversations. You can listen to that if you want to hear me and women of color talk about everything from people who inspire us to trending topics to our, you know, mm-hmm 
how we relate to the world even. Um, Every week it comes out every Tuesday and I only talk to women and I only talk to women of color because uh, we hear enough from white women. So let's just (laughs) listen to women of color and learn about their experiences. I have a YouTube channel called Comedian Jasmine W, J-A-Z-M-Y-N on YouTube where I talk about whatever really I feel like. I put out two videos a week. Um, One is on a show called Insecure. I'll probably do another show after this. Um, Mm -hmm. And then one is just a life update and things that I learned. Um, And those videos are probably going to get really good because I'm into conspiracy theories because then I might start just talking about those because we're in quarantine. (laughs) Um, And I have Instagram, J-A-Z-M-Y-N-J-W on Instagram. And that's where you can connect with me and everything else I do. Jasmine, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being vulnerable uh, and enlightening me about your upbringing and then also about Black Lives Matter and all the things that are affecting us today. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that and enlightening us how to be uh, better allies to the Black community. So appreciate that. So I'm moving to New York, but the plan is to eventually move to Los Angeles. So hopefully I get to see you. How are you going to move to New York before you move to L.A.? I don't. I don't. We just need my little daughter to have some type of community in France. We'll suck you in and eat you alive for the next seven years of your life. Watch New York. When you move to New York, you can't leave. It's like a it's like a sinkhole. You end up staying there for a decade and then you look up and you realize you've been there a decade. Well, I'll see you. I'll see you in a decade. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye then. Okay. That's right. We'll end it with that. (laughs) All right. So that wraps the show. So I saw online somewhere that everyone has their own lane that they take to counteract systemic racism. Some protest, some people donate, some people even have those tough conversations at home. So I guess my question for you is, which lane are you taking? And if you need some help figuring that out, check out Jasmine's show notes on feedlearning.com slash podcast. <laughs>